Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. City limits, and uh, on this day we're going to have um, we've got a full program, so we're going to going to bypass the normal rave we do at the start, which will have people out there, those who regular listeners, cheering madly, and uh, we're going to be talking very shortly to Ken Mooney about um, a, a great activist, Barbara Sullivan, who died a couple of weeks ago, and just catch up with because with Radiothon and all, we didn't catch up with uh, any tribute to Barbara. Uh, and then we're going to talk to... Um, well, you've got this one lined up. It's Rachel... Uh, uh, Rachel, Rachel Carey, Carey yes. Yeah. So Rachel Carey is an academic from Melbourne University who, whose uh, area of interest is the development on the food bowl around Melbourne. We talk a lot about urban sprawl and the impact that it has, so we'll be looking specifically at the impact it has on the food bowl. Right, and also this week there's a, an, a, an annual homeless memorial event um, and a person organised with that, um, Moria, yeah, Moria Boandamas, is going to come into the studio at about half past nine and talk to us about homelessness. That will uh, coincide with our normal housing segment on this day, an April break from the Housing with Aged April, um, Action Group's also coming in. And I want to talk to April, apart from the homeless issue, I think we should discuss this latest... Uh, Announcement is announced a couple of weeks ago by the government that they plan to privatise effectively a number of current public housing estates. I'll go straight to Ken Mooney because uh, we have got a crowded program. But Ken, Barbara Sullivan, I know you, um, you of course, worked in the gas industry yourself and you were heavily involved in the campaign against the privatisation of gas and fuel, SEC, etc., which we now know has turned out so badly for all. Uh, and you... You had a group called Public First, which was fighting that, and it was there that you worked very, very closely with Barbara Sullivan, Ken. Yes, it was, Kevin. Good morning, and good morning, everybody. And I'll pour some good tea. While, I'll pour some tea <laughs> while you're talking, Ken. Uh, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, Barbara was an outstanding mm. person. She brought her girls down. She had six girls. She brought them down from Queensland. And uh, they've all got fantastic politics, and, and, and Barbara was a communist. And um, she uh, was outstanding in every way. She's one of the most intelligent people that I've ever met. She was a convener of Public First, and um, it ran extraordinarily well. And uh, she was she was just outstanding in stuff that she did. She was able to... She was forward-thinking, and... Um, she was an activist in every way, and, and, and such, a, and she'll be such a loss. Well, there was an enigma, wasn't there? Because she worked for Public First. She was a communist, one of the rare people I know who was a communist, but also a practicing Catholic. And I know you, being so devoted to the baby Jesus, Ken uh, helped her out in St Vincent de Paul stuff. For well, instance. I didn't. I was going to mention that too. And, and she, she lived in Collingwood, and um, Collingwood, uh, St Vincent de Paul had no food. 
um, shop there or anything, and uh, Barbara went to one of the one of the brothers, and she said to him, "We should be doing food here." And he said, "Well, we we, we haven't got any money." And uh, she said, "Let's start. Uh, let's start very simply, and we'll just have um, uh, food. What what food we can get, and put it in the church hall." And they did that, and she finished up. She got a she got a shop. The shop was packed with food, and uh, I said to her, "Wouldn't it be good if we could get a small factory?" And she, we actually did. We were shelving shelvings in in there and food galore. And um, she was just an outstanding person. Anything she put her mind to, she did it. Mm. And, uh, and she, she was, just she was, to be and she was real. I mean, it was cancer at the end, wasn't it? But she was yeah, real. It was one cancer. She was relatively young, and she was only what sixty or so, I think, wasn't she? Uh, she was three years older than you, Kevin. She was very old. Oh, was 70, she? Oh, was she? Seventy-six. I didn't think she was. The, I didn't think she was that very old. old person. Yeah, well, she. I, I looked my age. She obviously didn't. Her daughters are very active mm. politically. Yes, we, we probably can't tell the story on air about one of her daughters and me with the coppers at um, Trade Hall, but. <laughs> 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 okay, I'm sorry I made you laugh, Ken, but look, thanks for that tribute, and um, it is it was appropriate, I think, that we acknowledge Barbara, because she did play a great role in all sorts of areas. And, She's um, just an outstanding uh, person, yeah, and, and, okay. and we'll miss her. All right, yeah. mm. okay, well, look, thanks Thank for that. You. And we are joined now by Rachel Carey from Melbourne University. Rachel is an academic whose one area of study is looking at the impacts of development on the food bowl around Melbourne. Have I got that right, Rachel? You do have that right. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> welcome, welcome to City Limits. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about the impact of urban sprawl here. It's a big issue and it's obviously a growing issue. Could you tell us a little bit about your area of study? Sure. Well, we've done some research as part of a project called the Food Print Melbourne Project about what grows in Melbourne's food bowl. And by Melbourne's food bowl, I just mean the farmland on the city fringe. And we found that that area grows far more food than people might think. So it currently has a capacity to meet just over 40% of Greater Melbourne's food needs. But there's a problem with that. The problem really is that as Melbourne grows to a population of 7 to 8 million people by around 2050, then the city's going to need at least 60% more food than it does now. But we're going to have less land available to grow that food on because we're putting houses on the farmland that used to grow our food. So the issue here really is that if the city <clears throat> if the city keeps sprawling the way that it has been, then by the time the city gets to a population of around 7 million people, then that city food bowl might only be able to supply around 18% of our food needs compared to the 40% that it supplies now. So we're going to have more people to feed but less land to grow that food on. This is a serious issue. And also when you look at it from a climate change perspective as well and about minimising food miles. There is a climate change impact um, of this and a dimension to it. And that is that we know with climate change that we're going to have face more pressures on our food supply. And those pressures will come from things like decreased availability of water, increase in drought and just more extreme weather events for things like storms and floods that are going to affect our food supply. That's likely to lead to more um, more price spikes in future, higher food prices. And one of the things that we really should be planning ahead for is to retain that city food bowl on our fringe as a bit of a buffer, if you like, as an insurance policy, so that when there are 
when there are disruptions to the food supply nationally and globally that we have some good sources of fresh food on our own doorstep. Mm. One of the problems, Rachel, of course, is that that uh, developers come along and, and ask and usually get land rezoned so that it suddenly its value leaps massively in the new, once it's zoned residential. Uh, and so the farmers are, are making a bit of a windfall out of it. But, but how do you overcome that problem? It's a really complex problem. I have to say there are many, um, many dimensions to it. But I do think that we need to kind of sit back as a city and say, first of all, you know, do we think it's important that we should be able to source some of our food locally in the future? And I say some because, of course, most of our food does already come from somewhere else. But the, the question here is, you know, do we think it's important that we retain some fresh food growing locally? If we do, then as complex as this issue is, then we do need to take some action. And the key thing here is we need to start to plan for food um, as an essential need in the same way that we plan for housing, the same way that we plan for transport. So while there will be issues, certainly in terms of farmers who want to um, retire and move out of the food bowl, and they absolutely should be able to, then you know, we need to be able to deal with those issues in a different way so that we still retain that land as a place for, for producing food. So, so you put a ban on rezoning it from whatever its current zone is, presumably. What, so what Agri- I would agriculture, like, whatever it's called. Yeah, so look, I think what um, some of the critical things that we need to do here are we need to fix the urban growth boundary as a hard boundary mm. rather than a boundary that's being reviewed every couple of years. At the moment, it's really quite a soft, malleable boundary. It's really important that we keep future growth within the existing growth corridors rather than expanding those corridors further and that we start to look at placing more development in existing urban areas rather than growing the city the way that we have been with a lot of development on the fringe and development at relatively low density levels. Mm. So there's a number of things that we really need to do to tackle this problem. Absolutely. Um, just out of interest, do you have any figures as to how much of the food bowl is within the existing urban growth boundary? We don't have any clear statistics on exactly how much of that food producing land is still within the urban growth boundary. There's relatively little food producing land left in within the urban growth boundary, but there's certainly some land that's currently producing food that's already been zoned for housing, but right now is still producing food. One of the critical issues as well is just that land on um, the fringe that borders the urban growth boundary, if you like. And there's a number of areas there that are particularly um, at risk. Um, on the nearer, the nearer that land gets to the urban growth boundary, often the more at risk that land is. So Melbourne's food already encompasses some, of, some small areas within the urban growth boundary, but also there's areas that border the urban growth boundary. Mm. And of course, that in that when that happens, also the the food itself, the growing food, is often very close to some source of pollution, like a freeway or something. Look, there are sources of food um, that are growing close to freeways, but we don't have any um, solid evidence to say that that's an issue in terms of pollution from you know from those sources. And there are also many benefits to growing food close to cities, mm. um, and those some of those key benefits actually come from the the streams of waste that we have in the cities that can be used to grow food. So um, we have good streams of wastewater that come from our, um, our water treatment plants, and that recycled water can be used to grow food. And as we enter into a drying climate, then those that source of recycled water is likely to be one of the most secure sources of water for growing food in future. And the other important waste stream that we have in the city is all the organic waste and food waste that could be converted into alternative sources of fertilisers. And that's really important because uh, the basis of conventional 
fertilizers is in very short supply at the moment, particularly fossil fuels, obviously. Mm. There's a huge untapped resource there, really, with all of the, when you think of all of the waste, the food waste, and the, from cafes and restaurants and houses mm. that could be fed into into the land that can be used for yeah. growing. Do you see how we need to be looking more at creating affordable housing as well if we are to try and create communities that are going to work in the existing urban form? I think they're really um, interesting questions, but if I can just speak to that from the, the food point of view, yes. I think one of the things is we focus a lot on affordable housing, but I feel that we need to broaden the way that we think about this as affordable housing is part of, of more broadly affordable living. So what we don't want is we don't want the quest for affordable housing to be creating unaffordable food for people. Now, I think that affordable living probably is most people's goal. And so from that point of view, we need to be thinking, you know, about affordable housing and affordable food. You know, how are we going to plan the city in such a way that we're able to um, do both of those things rather than, you know, creating a new problem, if you like, of, of unaffordable food um, in our quest for, for more affordable housing. The, the Herald Sun this week's been running a series about how to make Melbourne better in the future of Melbourne, but it's mainly led by the Committee for Melbourne, which is, I think, essentially a grand gang of corporate cowboys. Um, but their solution is that we take every bit of, it seems to me anyway, their solution is we take every bit of vacant land in existing Melbourne and turn it into a development, a private development, um, which again takes away any sort of space where you might want to even grow food in in urban areas, mightn't it? And <clears throat> um, in terms of you know food growing in urban areas, that's also you know a very important issue. I think one of the key things in future, that's just a more resilient food supply in the context of the pressures we're facing, is to have food growing in many different areas. And we've seen in the context of um, some of the extreme weather events that have hit various cities, thinking about the Brisbane flood instance and storms that affect other cities but in the context of those types of disasters people do often need to um, need to move to looking at the food that's actually growing close by them so growing food within cities as well as on the boundary can have a very protective and supportive effect not just in the context of these um, extreme events that I've mentioned but simply in the context of people having sort of more access themselves to affordable vegetables particularly that they're able to grow, whether it be in their own backyards or in community gardens as well. And there's also the community building aspect, um, particularly from community gardens and shared space where we're able to grow food. So I, I do think it's also important retaining space to grow food in the yeah. city as well as on the fringe of the city. But it- Sometimes we do, uh, you know, we, I notice a focus particularly now on growing food in the city, but sometimes it's at the expense of a focus on the importance of that land on the fringe of the city for us, as you rightly mentioned, for mass production of food, because we don't yet know how much food could actually be produced in the community, in the city itself, but it's very unlikely to be sufficient to be be feeding people. It's really important that um, we don't lose sight of the significance mm. of these areas on the fringe. So we know, for instance, that around half of Melbourne's vegetables are currently growing you know, in that city fringe area, Melbourne's food bowl. Mm. That's a lot of food. Hopefully we can find a way of preserving that food bowl and preserving the potential and the capacity within the city to, to grow food. And David Holmgren, the co-founder of Permaculture, has done um, a bit of work recently on retrofitting the suburbs. And he says that a lot of the backyards in the middle suburbs um, 
are a potential resource in the future because they've been used for growing food by many Italian Greek migrants who've come here from the 1940s and 50s. So there's a lot of growing potential. I think that's the issue for me that comes out of this is that we need to understand that this is complex and it's an ongoing conversation. I think you're absolutely right. It is a very complex um issue it has made dimensions to it and i think we often um, unfortunately we often oversimplify the issue yes. just in the context even of you know, protecting land on the fringe of melbourne this is much more than a land use issue it's much that much more than protecting land because if that land isn't actively farmed by farmers um then you know we're not going to protect the productive capacity of that land so it, it's as important that it's viable for farmers to farm in these areas as it is that we actually protect that land as well. And we also need to ensure that farmers in those areas have access to secure sources of water. So this is a very complex, multidimensional yes, problem. Indeed. And we need to really treat it as that if we're going to, um, if we're going to address the problem effectively. Absolutely. I just wanted to bring up the um, topic of, it's, they're called allotments in Europe or even certainly in the UK, this concept of allotment, small areas of ground that people rent mm. and till their own, make them grow their own foods. Is that is it called a, a, something different in Australia? I mean, is there a possibility of getting those things going? <coughs> people can That's grow their own. That's an interesting point. I'm from the UK myself, um, certainly familiar with the allotment system. We don't have anything like allotments here. So, you know, in the UK, in terms of the allotment system, there's a kind of obligation, if you like, on local governments to be finding spaces for people to grow food if they would like to do that. So we don't have the same kind of system here. I guess what we have is community gardens that are appearing perhaps as the nearest thing we have to allotments. Um, I think the, you know, the allotment system is interesting because having the obligation on local governments to provide spaces for people to grow food means that they're constantly looking for new spaces to do that and constantly opening up new spaces, whether that be disused areas of land close to railway lines, for instance. Um, so it does mean, I think, that they're looking at creative ways of taking unused land in cities and converting that into land for food production in a way that we're perhaps not at the moment. So we don't, we don't have a similar system here at the moment. I think it's a very interesting idea. Mm. Yeah, the nearest mm. thing to it here with the Collingwood Children's Farm where people do have their individual little little lots there. Um, but that's about the nearest thing to it mm. here. That's right. We've got yeah. Sarah's as well. Yeah, Sarah's. Or Sarah's, however you pronounce it. Yeah. Sorry, well, certainly, certainly many people within community gardens do have their own individual plots, but that's really the way that um, it kind of works here, I guess. And often those community gardens, um, they, they arise from grassroots efforts in the community from people who you know, who want shared spaces to, to grow food. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sorry, going on to that allotment and also this sense of it's forming cooperatives as well. Um, not sure how that ties with allotments, but the, you know, some I've seen, I'm not talking specifically about the UK, more on the continent of Europe, um, people work together they might have maybe one or two areas of allotments that they, they perhaps rent as a cooperative. I just thought that might be an extension of the allotment scheme. It might even be happening. Mm. Mm. Well, the cooperative idea is also an interesting one, and that's emerging, I guess, both at a community level where people are coming together and forming those cooperatives and also emerging in terms of people who are farming commercially as well, but on a very small scale. So 
also small-scale farmers who are coming together in parts of Europe and the United States as well to form cooperatives where they can then share that infrastructure. So share the infrastructure perhaps of storing um, food that they're producing, of cooling, of packing and marketing that food together and taking the relatively small amounts of food that they're each growing and um, putting that food together so that it can be sold on to larger buyers and supporting each other in that way as well. And I think that's also um, a very, very interesting initiative that's emerging. Mm. I know as a, as a kid, Rachel, show my age actually, as a kid, Rachel, we used to ride our bikes over the back of Moorabbin where there was, was all market gardens in those days. And now, of course, it's just all development. Mm-hmm. We've lost all that. But the other side of Melbourne, there's so much food grown. I mean, again, that's the area where developers are now really moving into. So the danger's really there, isn't it? The danger's there in a few areas. Just to go back to that, that issue you brought up there around Moorabbin, so you're absolutely right that, you know, Moorabbin was part of the original sandbelt area of market gardens. Mm. They spread out to the southeast of um, Melbourne and, and around the 1800s. But actually, there is still an area of food growing that's close to Moorabbin, um, which is the Heatherton area within the Kingston Green Wedge. There are, you know, relatively few market gardeners left, but there are certainly still market gardeners in that area who are um, who are supplying into the major major supermarkets. Um, and um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but that particular area currently in Heatherton has been proposed as the site of Melbourne's next big cemetery. <laughs> so that that decision is, is yet to be made, and I believe that will be that decision will be made next right. year. But if, well, they could, if, the, the way it's going, they can all starve to death by the sound of it. Can I just not, say for the? <laughs> um, but if, if that goes ahead, then that will mean that that will be the end, if you like, of the last of Melbourne's original mm. market gardens, which I I think would be a real mm. Chain for a couple of reasons. One, it's the la- it's the closest area of food growing that we have left to the city, and it's also an area with potential access to recycled water because of its proximity to the eastern treatment mm. plant down at Carrum. So really, it's a relatively small area, but still quite a strategically important food growing area for Melbourne, an area that should be preserved to grow food. Absolutely. Do things like the Plan Melbourne, um, you know, they've just recently done a, a, re, a rejig of the Plan Melbourne. Does that, does that talk about preserving these areas? Is that, mm. is that looked into and seen as a serious issue? Or? So that's an interesting question. So the latest iteration of Plan Melbourne um, certainly talks about the need to protect agricultural areas on the fringe of Melbourne. And I would say that the, the slight shift that we've seen in that new iteration of Plan Melbourne is the recognition there that food growing areas on the city are important to the, to the city's food supply um, okay. in the future, especially and in the context of a growing population. So, yes. so Plan Melbourne certainly says that what we haven't seen is any concrete actions or proposals for concrete actions to ensure that that happens. So. Certainly, well, that's it. Um, let's let's hope it translates into real meaningful action and, and not real concrete. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been a pleasure to have you on board today, and it's a very interesting topic. And hopefully, we'll get to talk to you again about it at some point in the future because mm-hmm. it's an ongoing issue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rachel. And in a few weeks, we're going to be talking. I sort of lead it up for the next, but you're going to be away for a couple of weeks. I think you, um, you'd like to be on it. Travels again. Pam Morgan, who's also been heavily involved in food issues and who was, in fact, uh, went to Cuba and set up some of those, helped set up some of those 
um, gardens in Havana, et cetera, food sources. Um, she's going to come on the program in the next few weeks to talk about some of these related issues as well. April Bragg's here up from the Housing for the Aged Action Group. That's where she's from. And um, April, you're, um, you're back in meaningful employment. Um, yes, I, I am. I had um, my fair work hearing last Friday. And uh, I'm really pleased to say that I was right. reinstated. And a new so. committee's been elected at Hague, so... Um, yes, and we have yeah. a new committee yeah. in place, so... We'll Congratulations. Um, moving forward, thank you. So we'll, thank you. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Um, uh, and we've got... Um, We've got uh, Moria um, Burandanis. Is that how we pronounce it? That's pretty good. Yes, I do. Is that close enough? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Moria, you're from a group, um, the annual Homeless Memorial um, Memorial. This is happening this afternoon. Tell us something about this. Yes, I'm on the, on the working committee with um, the Homeless Memorial. Um, that's a, it's a place. It started in 2001, the Homeless mm-hmm. Memorial, and it was for uh, to commemorate people that have lost their lives. Um, sleeping rough, and it uh, is a place. It's a safe place that we can give the voice to people that have no voices and the faceless people. Uh, we have a. It starts with a smoking ceremony. That's really uh, cathartic. It's really really lovely to do, and you can. Uh, there's food available and hats. You get knitted hats and mittens and coats. But more importantly, it's a ch- it's a place that you can speak and talk and remember people. Mm-hmm. That's great. And when you say homeless people who've died, I mean, I, I imagine that, um, that there'd be a fair few of them, wouldn't there? I mean, out in, particularly this sort of this time of year, people stuck mm-hmm. out in the cold. Well, this year it's held on the the first day of the winter solstice. On, on particular, mm. because it's the longest day. Which happens yes. to be today. Yeah. Yes. That's correct. <laughs> and, um, yes, uh, so it's also too – so that shows the, the hardship that people do having sleeping rough out in the cold mm. and rain. Yes. Like, like today Light is pretty today. rainy, yeah. yes. Um, and there are people that, that die through violence and through illness, and because they don't have access to a lot of facilities mm. because of being homeless, unless you have a home, you don't have a place where you can base yourself. No, that's right. And yet they've, yeah, they've been demonised a fair bit, particularly in the Murdoch media in the last year or so. The, the homeless in particular have really copped it. And you've got Robert Doyle bringing, trying to bring down laws which seem to have been abandoned, I think, following protests. But nonetheless... There seems to be a real attack on the homeless as if they're to blame for their own, own problem. Well, that's true. And, and that's, you know, there are issues that homeless people face. I was homeless myself, um, and I, that was through violence um, in the home, domestic violence, and I had to leave to save myself. But I had also, I had, um, also issues in trying to combat um, or medicate myself. I started drinking, so alcohol became a problem as well. And But people become homeless for lots of reasons. House fires, we know about the bushfires, people become homeless, losing their jobs. And homeless is not just sleeping rough on the street. You can be um, sleeping in rooming houses. You don't have anywhere permanent to stay. I stayed Mm. in um, six rooming houses, and I stayed at the Gatwick Hotel, which... For a little over a year, year and a half, which was actually a very nice place to stay compared to most places. Yes, mm. yeah, nice. Yeah, and, and yet next week, uh, SBS is running a series on homelessness where it's taking five or six, I forget how many, 
were they calling them really rich people who are going to spend a week or something being homeless? I mean, is this is this is this positive in that it's it's shining a light on the issue, or is it just using it for entertainment value? I think it's entertainment value. Personally, they yeah. don't understand really. There might be one week of oh my gosh, I'm cold, I'm hungry, or something like mm. that. They don't know the long term effects exactly. that, that happens with that. They don't know really what it's like day after day. But there are a number of senior executives in Australia of the great companies who go out one night a year on the <laughs> MCG or somewhere with a yeah. with an up, up with an up, upmarket yeah. sleep bag and upmarket yeah. whatever and um, and all their thermal clothes and and say they're helping the homeless yeah. well. let, let them try to find a safe place to sleep exactly find some cardboard that's not wet exactly. I've been um, assaulted in park sleeping and they don't, they're not in any of that way no. um, exposed to any of the violence that no. goes on especially for women in in um, being homeless as well. They, I think there's an added there's an added stigma in some way, especially if you're a mother, because I was a mother of four when I had to leave, and I did leave my children behind. Um, everything's fine now. <laughs> my That's daughter was at hear. the homeless memorial last year, and we went through the smoking ceremony. But um, going back to the, the homeless memorial, it's about um, promoting social inclusion as well, that these are things that can happen to anyone, honestly, anyone. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Very quickly, because um, mm. you know, while you're saying, perhaps a, a you know a, a week, but really within a couple of weeks, if you're being forced on to to, to new start, or that you lose your housing for for whatever reason, and of course being low income, not being being able to access again very quickly, um, it your your life can unravel very mm. quickly, and as you said, lead to, to mm. health problems, but other coping mechanisms, yes, um, which we we all put in place. It's it's however. You, you cope, but it, again, just compound yeah. the problem. Well, I was thinking when Moria was speaking, I was thinking that unions say if, if, unless you raise money for people on strike, if yes. you go on strike, you're about one month yes. off bankruptcy. A- absolutely. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. And that's, you know, if you hit that point, yeah. kaput. Yeah. You mentioned the Gatwick Hotel. I live in St Kilda. There's a three-page spread in the local uh, St Kilda paper um, last week about its closure. And um, the people who are running it, there's a couple of women sisters. They're just Rose they're doing all. The, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure their names. You know yes. their names. Yes, yeah. you're speaking at the homeless memorial. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. he's just they're just doing all the work trying to find these people other alternative accommodation. They don't seem to be getting any help from anywhere to do that. I don't know what's happening. Well, there. I know they've found some accommodation for people in rooming houses, but um, it's hard. There's a shortage of housing, yeah. and and it's going to be forcing people back onto the streets. Rose and Eddie are lovely women. I know that Gatwick has a very bad reputation, but it is not at, at far. It's I've been in worse places too. Yeah. Isn't and it going to be trended up by Channel Nine as entertainment <coughs> or something? Isn't it yeah, part of that? It's going to be the block renovation. That's great mm-hmm. news, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But, well, particularly Kevin, and, and you know, great great news, and you say that the difficulty of um, Lynn, of relocating people. Where um, I mean. I, I, I'm very old, so I, I remember conversations going on about the Gatwick for over 20 years in terms of government mm. conversation and council conversation about how to redevelop that block or buying it, and um, yeah, and why those women, um, you know, certainly the, you know, often the last place of um, anyone taking them in and showing some some compassion. But everybody knew that something had to be done, and everyone, you know, we've been talking about the housing crisis for some time, and I think in terms of that 
the two sisters ending up with the people um, helping those remaining people now is part of the the problem in terms of us privatising, particularly the public housing mm. system, where there are a whole lot of criteria mm. now. Um, so, and without supports to be able to sustain tenancies, I would imagine that a lot of those people would not be picked up as ideal tenants and yeah. basically that's yeah. what we're needing well, that's what you need to be now um, even within that I know, agree. They're, public they're, system they're, they're, they let anyone come in yeah. honestly and, and there are lots of people with uh, mental health issues mm-hmm. and you know they were like unofficial yeah. social workers yeah. in a way they would if, if you were short sometimes they would let you stay mm-hmm. they let you work within the building to help oh. alle- um, alleviate um, some of the rent and whatever but you know they also offered services there's a health care uh, health time there that that's where I got through there I got my housing I just went in to see mm-hmm. a podiatrist there that's and it's um, agencies and they were they were there every week and I got um, a caseworker through there and I got housing in older person's high rise yeah. But they're they are very thoughtful women, and they have yes. time for you. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, go, thank go, you for speaking up yeah, for go, them going, as well. Yeah, going back to the go on, finish here. Oh, oh no, I was just going to say because um, not a lot of people do, and I, no. I know there's been a lot of criticism. So to to hear about their hearts is just wonderful. Yeah, it is <laughs> truly. Yeah. Yes. Speaking yeah. of, you, you raised the point about public housing, etc. But I, I've mentioned a few times in this program. Sometimes when I'm going home from the market on Saturday morning, I sit at the tram stop in Peel Street, and I look up, and you can see nothing but high-rise development, massive billions of dollars literally in front of you, uh, cranes everywhere building all this, and I think down below there's a 100 or more people on the street who can't find a roof overnight. Mm. There's something wrong with a society that can put billions into real estate but can't house people who need it. There really oh. is, and, and many there are many empty apartments as well because people buy them and they land banking. Yeah. And um, it's interesting to see how Jeremy Corbyn in the mm. UK has yeah, suggested actually, um, great, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, saying yeah. that there are the, the people who are land banking apartments in in London um, that those those should be retrieved for the victims of this horrific fire at Grenfell. Yes, he's and, got dangerous policies, hasn't he? <laughs> 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 I, well, I also read today that the um, people. Well, some of the people from the Crenville fire had mm. been living, have been living in their cars. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 and yet, and yet, there are empty, there are empty, yeah. empty places, and and this is true in Melbourne too. There are so many empty apartments, and I don't know how we're going to solve that, but some kind of taxation on empty apartments or, or something. But it's just, mm. it's just a, a reflection of where we're at at the moment. Well, there was a building it? in city a couple of weeks ago where where apparently homeless people have been squatting. And Doyle had them thrown out. It's absolutely heartless. It is heartless. Yeah, so the memorial today, the details actually... Uh, yes, Maria? it's um, it's uh, held at the Peanut Farm Reserve in St Kilda. Uh, it uh, has a giant marquee outside. It's next to the community um, gardens there called Veg Out. But it's in an open marquee and... Um, they're singers, like I said. It's the solstice, and it's it's uh, um, all agencies and services contribute to this. So it's it's non political, but it's there to um, bring, and and it's also where people sleep. They it's sleep in, in the bushes there. Yeah. <laughs> For those looking, it's in Chaucer Street, St Kilda. Yes. So it's yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, so and it's four thirty. Right. It starts and it goes through till seven.
Yes. And there's all sorts of events. All right. Well, look, thanks for that. We we, we might give another plug. We'll give it another plug right at the end of the show if you want to hang around and join us up here. But, April, I do want to go to you. Um, in recent weeks, we've had the government uh, talking about redeveloping all sorts of, mm. well, lots of the the public housing estates around Melbourne. Yep. Uh, and I, know, I notice in a couple of them already they're saying, well, they're prepared to, to allow the developer to go much higher than even the local rules allow. <coughs> Um, so you're going to have private developers effectively privatising these things. Yeah. Um, are you in favour of all that, eh? <laughs> um, no, and, and I, I suppose one of the things is... Um, Another probing question. Yeah, <laughs> about... Um, there, there's a number of issues, and, and these are all the ones that we keep raising just about every every month. I, I'm often wondering, do you still want us to come, come on to keep raising the same things? But um, the issues are around... Um, and we could learn from the examples, um, except I'm, I'm not aware that there's any research that's been done, particularly on the Kensington estate or the, the Carlton estate, um, where if there has that information has been made public about the disadvantages, I suppose, well, you, know, you can always hear about the advantages, but the disadvantages when you um, turn public housing areas into um, the public-private mix and what we actually lose. And when we're talking about, you know, the homeless memorial um, today, to even think about taking um, any public housing uh, away from those areas and putting private housing on, um, particularly when, um, you know, um, has the add-on effect. Like in Kensington, there are a number of um, streets on that estate, which was all public housing at one stage, old walk-ups and high-rise, but um, uh, private housing being built and it becomes very expensive housing and then has the knock-on effect, of course, of particularly private rents um, in the area and people not being able to, to rent, um, you know, those people who traditionally On, on that point, yep. the City of Sydney in the last couple of weeks has announced <coughs> it wants to develop a lot of its own land uh, yep. with developers, go into partnership with developers, allowing for affordable housing, but there'll be the usual situation yep. where the developer will also put lots of expensive stuff. Yep. And the develop, one of the developers they're thinking of choosing is boasting that, that they, in fact, developed Kensington and Carlton in Melbourne and have a great track record mm. of doing this sort of work. Uh, you're suggesting the track record isn't all that good? Well, not not in terms of solving a housing crisis that, that we have or making housing more affordable because um, both of those areas have the social mix and they have what's called affordable housing but we need to remember that that's actually 70%, 75% of the market rent. So they're saying, you know, people, um, particularly workers, um, you know, low to medium income workers get that discounted rent but we're still talking about a really high rent. Exactly. And mm. who's exactly. making the profit out of that? And, and again, of course affordable <coughs> is relative, isn't it? Well, uh, that, that's, What is affordable that, housing if you've right. got nothing in your pocket? That, well, that's right. Wages are stagnating and yeah. Property prices are going up, so seventy percent of the rent yes, is, 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 a, is, is a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot, and it, and theoretically that could keep increasing. That yes. and not the percentage, but the actual amount of rent that they have to pay could keep increasing if house prices yeah. keep increasing. So, so, so the state housing authority and the government <coughs> itself does nothing about um, keeping prices down, no. even in the in the private rental market by these kind of schemes. They're That's just right. adding to the problem. But of course. Um, you, you know, as Moira was talking about her situation and, you know, people that, that we see every day and, you know, again, and we talk about, you know, our younger generation, what's their future, as you're saying, casualised work, workforce, lower wages than what we ever had mm. when, you know, <laughs> our yeah. age group when we started working, uh, they're working um, 
lives are so so more precarious. Um, you know, at least we had some rights. I don't I don't find workers have any rights at, at, no, at all. Yeah. And they're all on contract. A yeah. lot of these things. So yeah. there's no stability as well. Even with that, I know with my children. I know my daughter is on yeah. a six month contract. So yeah. how do you plan for yeah. a future? Yeah. And you can't get yeah. a mortgage either. Of course, no, that's right. You can't yeah. get a mortgage. So again, it forces more people into rental accommodation. Yes. Yes. And of course, with rental issues, we don't have many rights either. No, that's right. And if you yeah. suddenly have a sudden change in income, you can get thrown as you know and get thrown out and bloody days. Blah. Yeah. Six, six yeah. Or get sick. I mean, so many casual workers, etc. You get sick, there's no sick pay. No. Um, so you're suddenly not no income, whatever. Mm. You get no holidays either, of mm. course, and all mm. that. So yes, workers are just being screwed to the mm. wall, of course. And that, and so the end result is it can lead to things like homelessness yes. or in a very know, short certainly housing of time. housing crisis. Yeah. The other thing in in the redeveloped areas, um, and there's no question about. Um, some of these areas, um, like in Brunswick, um, the Grand Place Estate, um, or old concrete walk-ups, and I worked on that estate and estates around Brunswick for, for a long period of time um, years ago. But one of the things is that they're family estates, um, so um, predominantly three bedrooms. Um, a lot of, um, uh, I would think, applicants that are on waiting lists now that are families at least need three bedrooms, sometimes four mm. bedrooms, particularly for our um, cold communities. And often the redevelopments that happen are, are generally two bedrooms. So mm. um, often, you know, the department does that stuff with um, stats and they say, yes, we're, you know, we're losing 100, but, we get, you know, we'll replace it with 100. Mm. But it's bedrooms that, that we actually lose. Mm. And you change well, the Well, Foley's whole... saying that these redevelopments will end up with more public housing than there is now. Um, now, one assumes they're probably one-bedroom apartments or something, and also the fact he's allowing them to go way over the top in yes. terms of um, the height yep. limits. But the, um, the other thing is, about yeah. who's, who's managing them, um, because they're... Uh, it, it, I mean, he's just announced the transfer of public housing stock. I, I mean, that's what we're doing in this state. We're transferring our, mm. our stock over to um, the not-for-profit sector. And again, there's all those new... I'm um, sorry, there's all those... Eligibility requirements that that aren't transparent um, can vary from site to site depending whether you know the funding mm. came from. We talked about that before. Um, there's still those issues, policy issues that need to be sorted out. Um, again, on Monday I had a um, VCAT hearing where um, a social housing tenant. Um, she had uh, lost her husband a couple of years ago. They haven't adjusted the rent down. She is really struggling, that's why. And, they, and they've and they really got the shits with her in the sense that we have to keep taking you back to VCAP because you keep falling behind. Yes, you keep falling behind because my rent is based on two two incomes. But it's their policy and they're not, they won't provide the policy on how they set rents, but they just say, and they even said it in VCAT, we don't have to provide the rent setting calculation mm. um, to this tenant. Um, she just needs to pay. Um, so, for, and in, within public housing at the moment, of course, if you, you have a rebated rent, if your circumstances change, then it adjusts to, to your income, um, which is a fair and reasonable thing. But the thing that you were saying before about affordable rents, I mean, seeing, it was always seen that, you know, public housing being 25% of your income was affordable because it's less than the 30% benchmark. But I can tell you people are really struggling to, to find that in terms of the other costs that are happening. So yes. there needs to be a review, as you say, mm. in Kevin, what is affordable? Yeah. Um, and let's look at that. Is it the basket of goods, the essential basket of goods that, mm. you know, every household, you know, needs to be able to survive? Um, because there are many people going without essential things. Mm. And we see in our service that, you know, older people who never before even, um, you know, as kids um, 
through the depression and their families were, you know, um, forced to, um, you know, go to um, uh, meal centres. But mm. many of our people are, are doing that now and it's great to be eating communally. But if it's not your choice and you're actually having to do that, to have one meal a day, then, as you were saying before, there's something wrong with our society. Well, so, yeah. I mean, there's, there's also reports, not just that, but, you know, the... the we know that utility costs are rising yes, dramatically, and yes. people, you know, there's all reports all the time of the people who are so far behind in those things. Uh, plus, there was other further reports that people have these massive debts on their credit cards. So, mm. you know, it, it means a hell of a lot of people are really on the fringe of ending up yeah. on the street somewhere. Very much on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, one credit card payment away. You know, yeah. it's, um, I've been on times that have I've had to ask for food vouchers, mm. and mm. it's not. <laughs> it's very embarrassing to do. And and with my electricity at home, I just don't turn any lights on. Yeah, yeah. Really? I yeah. really don't. I yeah. don't have any lights on. Yeah, yeah no. Right. Just to keep it down. The yeah. stats, yeah. Um, when I was looking into this on um, the past, writing, writing um, articles, um, the stats particularly pinpointed women in the 70s who were the high up in the homelessness um, rates. So I'm just wondering if that's still the case or if you've come across that yourself. You know, that's that category. Well, I'm an older person. I'm 65. And I found that when I was home, it was very hard to find a place for me. I was put in um, only places were available were in men's rooming houses. Mm. And I would be the only female. And and twice I was put in uh, shelters that were for men that had committed domestic violence and told not to come out of my room, really, not to use the lounge room. But uh, with older women, yes, there there are a lot of um, older women in my building now. Yes. But uh, um, I, th- yeah, I, I think it's very hard for women because you've come out, you don't get employment, you don't get any of that, and 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 there's a stigma too that you've got kids and then grandkids and you're hiding them. I know women in my building that have grandchildren that are staying with them because of issues Mm. and they can't cope with that. No. I I remember um, years ago, it was actually your building that was having um, an estate and this is when the housing minister was actually a tenant worker on that estate Um, but there were estate improvements programs going on Mm. and it meant that there was kitchen refurbishment and they had always had four burners on the um, um, on the on the stove, but the, these architects and senior bureaucrats were wanting to reduce it to two hot plates, and um, and of course when they were being done, all the tenants were saying, "But you know, we like to like to cook," and there was no <laughs> recognition that people had families, like it was, yeah. and that they'd come mm. over, and you know, and that people had had full lives and were cooking mm. for families and wanted to just still do that on a Sunday and do the family roast, and and, it, and they just assumed everyone was just living alone and had no, you know nobody in their lives or. <laughs> I, it's funny that you say that about also about the stovetops because when I open my oven door, my smoke alarm goes off yeah. and it has nothing to do with the smoke. Mm. It's just the heat. So yeah. I can't, you know, yeah. I'm going, who designed this? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. You've, yeah. Gone through, you've gone through <laughs> yeah. 20 broom handles, haven't you? Yeah. 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 I remember once in, in, in that, subject, again, the estate improvements program and um, we had this architect and it, everything that we just said, look, older people actually need, like, can we put the PowerPoints up, you know, higher and, oh, mm. no, structurally the building will have all kinds of problems. Look, we've got to wind yeah, up because we've got sorry. a couple of things to finish up on. But, um, Moria, just once again give us the details of the memorial yeah. today. And- okay, the homeless memorial is being held at the Peanut Farm Reserve, the corner of Chaucer Street and Shakespeare Grove in St Kilda, next to Veg Out. 
Um, it's uh, the cer- smoking ceremony is at starts at four thirty and it runs till seven p.m. And please come along. It's a very moving and meaningful um, ceremony, and I encourage everyone to come and support and acknowledge people that are homeless. And it's sort of a tribute to many of the really forgotten people of our society, yes. isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's tragic in many ways. Tragic. And just before we finish, Lynn, you're heading off to have an Achilles injury fixed up, well, or hopefully not, fixed not up. Not Achilles, well, no. It is. It's down the, <laughs> but it's in down my the, foot. It's, it's in your painful. foot, okay. Yeah. I know you're hoping to be fit again for the women's footy season next year. Uh, yeah, that's, um, a, that's a goal. But, um, goal. So, look, Excuse me. So it's your, last, <laughs> it's your last program for a while, at least. And uh, so, look, thanks for all your work this year. We will see you hopefully when you get back. My pleasure. But, uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, so, yeah, thanks, Lynn. Um, yeah. yeah. Is there a campaign, obviously, there is being organised? to try and stop the government flogging off these housing estates? or You know, they probably, some of them probably do need being done up, but the state should yes, do it itself. That, that, that's right. And, and um, a lot of those estates have been earmarked for um, either what I call estate improvements, so the upgrading, which mm-hmm. is generally the internal and the outside spaces, or the redevelopment of them. I, I certainly know that Grom Place has been on the redevelopment list for at least 25 years, so it's mm. not something new. <laughs> yeah. um, it's and, moving up the list. Yeah, <laughs> and so now so now we're, we're looking at selling off um, land and redeveloping, but um, I, I think the beginning of a campaign, mm. because this is usually um, like with the High Street Northcote um, redevelopment, that was going to be sold off. We save that through a campaign. It's usually done estate by estate, but now that this is rolling across statewide, mm. well, we certainly need... Well, there's eight I think, is there. Yeah, we, name, we certainly yeah. need to band together. All right. Yep. Mm. Okay, well, look, thanks Thank for you. that, and um, we have run out of time. But, um, Maria, seeing you're a, a guest today, you, um, thanks for coming in. It's <laughs> been great, and uh, good luck with all that stuff. And <laughs> Take care, Thank everyone. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye.